Let's turn to Romans chapter 7. Man, I'm going to tell you what we've done had church already and my voice is struggling. <laughs> Romans chapter 7, when you get there, say word. I'm just going to tell you up front. God gave me a good message. I'm not, I don't plan on shortening it tonight. Let's stand for the reading of the word of God. Romans chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was death. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. May God bless his word be seated in his house. Brother Russell, bring me down just a tad bit. My title is, We Are Not Antinomians. What is an antinomian? Someone who claims that the law is no longer in effect. An antinomian claims that Jesus did away with the law and it's no longer valuable. We don't need to talk about it. It doesn't apply to us. That's an antinomian. Maybe you've labeled me an antinomian. Maybe you said Preacher Jesse talks so much about grace that he doesn't think the law is in effect. That's actually what they labeled Apostle Paul. Of being, And one of the greatest preachers uh, in England, uh, Martin, Lloyd- Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, The true preaching of the gospel will always result in the accusation of antinomianism because when you see it's all about grace, what you will be labeled as is someone who thinks the law is not valid. Hmm. So praise God, if anyone has labeled me an antinomian, at least maybe I'm getting to where Apostle Paul was. But here's the key, we're not antinomian, and we're going to see why, because of Scripture. Paul has told us in the previous verses that we are not under or bound by the law because we're now under grace and the Spirit. Our guiding force is now the Spirit. First of all, when we talk about being free from the law, we're not talking about the Ten Commandments. What I'm saying is, when we become a Christian, we don't go and commit murder now. We don't go and uh, steal things now. We don't go to Walmart and go on a shopping spree because I'm under grace. <laughs> I've never been pulled over by a police officer to say, Officer, I'm under grace, not law. I might try it and see if he's a believer. Maybe that will touch base with him. But it's never worked. Paul is talking about our need or our desire To become self-validated through our own works and efforts. That's ultimately the law. He says we're not under self-validation no more where we think that our works put us in right standing with God. That's, That's what the ultimate manifestation of the law is. The belief that we have to do more and more to appear holy. And it doesn't start with the belief or understanding that we have to do more. It begins by thinking we have to do something at all 
to become holy. So being under the law is not just about the amount, but even the quality that I have to do something to get in God's favor. That's what the law points us to. And he says, you're not under that anymore. Jesus has already united him to himself. However good you are does not affect that. You're not under that mentality. I don't know if I've said this very much, but I've thought it very much. Genesis chapter 3 unlocks the entire rest of the Bible. If you know what happens in Genesis chapter 3, you see the fall of Adam and Eve. You see sin enter the picture. And the proper exposition of Genesis 3 tells us why the rest of the Bible matters. What we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that the serpent introduces to Adam the idea that he's deficient. That he has a lack or he has a need. You see, before this, Adam didn't have a need. He was content. He had everything he needed to relate with God and to relate with creation and to relate with humanity. He was a fully provided for person. There was no want. You know what? I think that's part of what salvation is. Being in a place where there's no more want. Where there's no more want, there's simply be. Think about that. We move from non-existence to existence. When there's want, that means I'm not yet fulfilled. I'm really not being. I'm wanting. Right? So, so before the fall, here you have Adam. Perfect being. Perfect contentment. And the servant says, listen, you need this to feel validated. The serpent introduces the law. It wasn't that, that God was giving him the law. It was that the serpent was twisting how Adam would hear it. God was trying to protect Adam. He said, don't eat this because you'll die. God's holy and just command is always good. But because of Ultimately, our interpretation to say, well, I'm not good enough. I'm deficient. We're going to take the law and we're going to use it for a purpose that it wasn't intended to be used. Adam saw that the external thing now becomes an item, the fruit that will place internal value. And if he doesn't have it, I don't have value. And what the law says is, ultimately, I need to do so many things to be valuable to God. And, and that's a never-ending process. If, if coming to church Sunday makes me valuable to God, then I have to come to church Sunday night, and I have to come to church Monday for visitation, and I have to come to church Wednesday for prayer meeting, and I have to come to church Saturday morning for, for Bible study. And, and here's what we see in religion, and the reason there's so much programming in religion, in churches who are really meeting a lot but not doing a lot, is because we think that more means holy. More just simply means busy, not holy. More never makes us holy. You can meet in church 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It won't make you holy. So the key here is not that we need, that the law is sinful, but that the desire which it produces becomes sinful. When I see the command... The command is not bad, but what it does in my depraved heart is bad. 
The law was there through Moses to help Israel worship God. But what we see is they used it not as a means to worship God, but as a means to provide their own justification before God. Look at me, I'm keeping the law, I must be good with God. I must be right. They were taking the good command and using it for their own justification, which was not its purpose. By outward appearances, we think that people that have the external stuff are doing pretty good. It doesn't matter if it's the Pharisee or the rich Babylonian king. By the, by the rich king. By outward appearances, it looks like law keepers are doing pretty well. But in reality, Jesus said, even those who kept the law on the outside were dry on the inside. Because they had divorced the law from love. And that's where it no longer becomes worship. So tonight we're going to focus on some really good things about the law. And we're not antinomian. Number one, the law shows us what sin is. Paul says he would not have known sin except through the law. You've heard me tell the story about the bonfire in my backyard. Set a really big bonfire. I think it was last fall. Next thing I know, the sheriff department shows up. Three fire people show up. Fire department shows up. And the fire chief comes and inspects my bonfire. You're talking about feeling legalistic. He says, I need to look at your fire. Who are you to judge my fire? That's what I feel like religious. That's what I feel like religious people are. I need to inspect your fire. Hmm? Who are you going to tell me what my fire is or not? He comes and looks at my fire. Got any tires in there? Not this time. <laughs> right? Is all this grown on your property? I found it on my property. <laughs> well, I had burnt a bunch of leftover wood that my grandpa had around his basement, stuff like that. And anyways, he said, you can't burn anything other than brush. Okay? I would not have known that except for the law. The law showed up and sin was found. <laughs> Pretty good, George. <laughs> would not have known sin except for the law. <laughs> and also know this that even though I can burn brush on my property it's better for me to get a permit so that when my neighbor calls the fire department the fire department knows that I have a schedule burn I never had exciting stuff like that when I was in a neighborhood you move out in the country there's always something exciting my neighbor has a cannon he made a cannon it rattles my china cabinet But when the law came, Paul says, now I, I really see and know what sin is. Secondly, the law manifests what is there all along. The law shows us what lies there, and it's a magnifier for what is inside. Once Adam was told that he could not have the fruit, what did the serpent do? He's presented that the idea. He says, listen, you really could have the fruit. And now because he needed the fruit... He was on this bad path. Oh, oh, tell me I can't do something. I want to do something. And here's the problem. Once we see that we can't do something, we want to do it. You tell the kid don't get in the cookie jar, the kid will get in the cookie jar. I guarantee it. Because we have this innate desire that when we're told what we can't do, we want to. That's what the law produces in us. It shows us our true character. This is true for sin and for works. 
Works become sinful when they become idolatry instead of worship. What I mean when I'm talking about works, I'm talking about the attempt to better ourself, the constant need for self-improvement. And what we happen is we try to place value where value doesn't exist through the law. For example, there's nothing wrong with weight loss. But when we seek to do that, because we think it makes us more valuable, it goes from being worship to works. Being healthy can be worship. Being healthy should be worship. But when we think that that's going to make us more valuable, or that's going to place in us a contentment, then it becomes idolatry, it becomes works. Self-justification. There's nothing wrong with lifting weights. I talked to a guy one time. He told me that literally weights had became his idol. Lifting weights had became his religion. Let me tell you, you'll find some really religious people in the gym. You'll find more religious people in the gym. They're more passionate about pumping iron than we are about pumping worship. They're there every single day. I wish, I wish 25% of Christians... We're as concerned with Jesus as people are about CrossFit. And if you do CrossFit, I'm not bashing you. Let me tell you, CrossFit people are crazy. They're like CrossFit evangelists. (laughs) They're like, do you do CrossFit? And I feel like I need to. Should I do CrossFit? (laughs) That's how we should be about the house of God. Did you come to House of God tonight? Should I? Yes! But they become so religious about literally muscular tissue, which will last 75, 85 years if we're all lucky. Think about it. Think about it. There's nothing wrong with that. But once it becomes a thing that places value in our life, it's idolatry. There's nothing wrong with money. Matter of fact, money's a good thing. Money buys food and medicine and heat for your house. Money can eradicate problems in the world, like fresh water in Haiti and education for children. But when money becomes a goal that we think is going to make us valuable, now it's works, now it's law, now it's going to place into me something that doesn't exist. And it never ends. See, apart from the law, sin was always there, but it wasn't yet ramped up. Here's what we think. We think, well, if God didn't give the law, people would be pretty good. Because Paul says when the law came, sin revived. So if God didn't give the law, people would be pretty good, right? Well, look at the countries that really don't have the Bible prominently. I mean, think about, you know, just your average country without the Bible. North Korea. How are they doing? Think about Russia. They say people are crazy in Russia. They are not lying. Think about China. Think about all these communist countries that don't have the law. Are they any better? Paul would say, Meganoito, by no means. It still exists, but we see it now. They have no idea what it is. We see it. They're not good people. Doesn't mean we're better than them, but it means that their natural course of depravity has come to 
pretty big head. You see, without the law, sin's always there. It's like, a, it's like a rotting dead corpse giving off the stench of the fall. It's, it's not living to the fact that we don't yet have a knowledge of it yet. You know, one of the understandings of the word sin is in the New Testament, uh, missing the mark. So you see, if I'm just out there shooting arrows in my backyard and there's no target, I don't know if I'm missing anything. But once someone puts a target there, I realize I'm a terrible shot. The arrows are still being fired, but the law shows us what the target looks like. The target is perfection. And we miss the mark every single time. The arrows of depravity are still being fired all over the world. But the law shows us this is what God's shooting for, and it's perfection. And the only person that hits it is Christ. So ultimately, the law shows us what Jesus is, perfect, true, and good. Everybody still with me? The next thing is the law causes the self to die. Paul says in verse 10, the thing which should have brought life actually brought death. The law brings death to everyone. Because it shows us little by little by little by that we're not perfect. It shows us how flawed we are. It shows us how needy we are. I heard <laughs> somebody told me today that there's a preacher in the area, a well-prominent preacher, that posted something about not eating bacon. You talk about me going Apostle Paul on somebody. Leviticus also says don't trim the sides of your beard right Leviticus also says don't eat shrimp well, let me tell you I chow down on some cocktail shrimp now I'll eat six pounds of that probably not good, good for you but here's the deal why were there all those laws over 600 why? Because God wanted Israel to see that they'll never be perfect. And here's the amazing thing. When you get to the time of Jesus, some of them still thought they were. This one man came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what should I do to get into heaven? Jesus says, you know the commandments. Honor your father and mother. Keep the Sabbath holy. Do not have any other gods. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. And you know what the guy said? I've kept every one of them since my youth. He says, I've been perfect, Jesus. What else do I got to do? You know what I think Jesus told Nicodemus whenever he says, what must I do to enter heaven? I think we've interpreted Nicodemus wrongly. In evangelicalism, we take the concept of being born again as spiritual regeneration. I think Jesus was giving him an impossible task. Nicodemus, this, this boaster, what shall I do? He was looking for a work. Jesus says, get born again. Now take your evangelical mindset off the table and say, how would Nicodemus have heard it? He doesn't know born again is a spiritual term, and he didn't interpret it that way. He said, Jesus, what you want to do? Get back into my mother's womb? Jesus was giving him an impossible task to say that eternal life rests not in what you can do. But in grace alone. The law is supposed to show us that we can't get to God 
The law becomes the instrument of our deconstruction. You see, without the law, we think we're pretty good people. We think, you know what? I'm doing good for myself. I haven't killed anyone. But Jesus said, if you've hated in your heart, you've committed murder. Half of you have murdered 12 people before you got to church today. <laughs> if you didn't, you're going to do it on the way home. You know, we said, you know what, I'm not slept around with a bunch of people. Only four. I'm just kidding, guys. But Jesus said, if you've lusted in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. <laughs> Every one of you. Jesus said, you're all adulterers. All of you. The law must deconstruct us before grace can reconstruct us. The building must be torn down before the temple can be <laughs> built. So the gospel or the message of Jesus must always be law and grace. And here's where people get it wrong. They either give all law, like Westboro Baptist, or like the preacher at UNCC which yells at all the students for being sinners. They either get all law or they get all grace. It's not one or the other, it's both. We cannot know grace without knowing the law. When Tyler and I were dating, uh, we'd been dating for a while, I went shopping for an engagement ring. And I'm closing it down, folks. I'm, sh I'm shutting her down. I went to this really nice place. I mean, it's a nice place. You literally walk through a vault to get into the store. Like they have a security guard punches in a code and opens up a vault so you get in the store. Like, oh my gosh, I'm in the wrong place, Brother Dane. <laughs> they come inside and they say, would you like a glass of wine or a Coke? thought for a moment, I said, I'll have a Coke. After they told me the price, I said, I'll have one. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. So I came in. I'm a college student. They bring out this black mount on the counter. I thought they were going to do a magic trick. Like David Blaine was coming out. <laughs> but the mat was a black backdrop. So when they placed this diamond on it, the beauty of the diamond showed. Now if they would have taken, and they brought out the first diamond, it was more than my whole budget. Like not even a ring, just a diamond. Just a rock. I'm going to take my Coke and I'll see you guys later. <laughs> anyway, here's my point. If they would have taken the diamond and set it on the glass countertop, I would simply have been seeing transparency. I wouldn't have seen its beauty. But on the beauty uh, against darkness, that reflection became beautiful. The law is there so we see the darkness of our sin that the diamond of grace become beautiful. Why do we've got mediocre Christians? Because there's a mediocre glass countertop called the self-help gospel which doesn't make Jesus look big.
And when we preach law and grace, we see, man, I'm a big sinner and Jesus is a big savior. Praise God. Because all the great apostles, all the great preachers, all the great evangelists, let me tell you, they weren't super spiritual people. They were super sinners who were following a super savior. And Apostle Paul, the greatest writer of the New Testament, could come to the end of his days. And he didn't say, you know what, I'm the chief of saints. You know what he said? I'm the chief of sinners. The most spiritual person in the New Testament said, I'm the biggest sinner of all. Maybe that's why I wrote most of the New Testament. Because God works through big sinners. I'm not talking about the people that are committing most sins, but the people that realize the depth of their own depravity. I'm no good without God. May we have that mindset of Paul. You know what? I'm dark, but Jesus is bright. And I want people to see Jesus. Because if they see this, there's no good here. See Jesus. Let's pray.